Black Friday is a wonderful time of year because brands feel obligated to put everything on sale, and that is great for you, especially if you're a fan of magnesium breakthrough, probiotics, and digestive enzymes. In fact, you'll get 25% off site-wide starting November 21st, so listen up. Magnesium is a mineral that quite literally can change your life and health. It's estimated that over 90% of Americans are deficient in magnesium, which is a stressor on the body. And its demand goes up in times of stress, so it's a one-two punch. Being deficient in magnesium is linked to migraines, sleep issues, heart disease. There's even an inverse relationship between magnesium levels and risk of stroke. That is serious and something we should be spreading the word about. And even more critically, there's not just one type of magnesium that works. Now, I'm normally a big advocate of getting as many of our nutrients as we can through a well-balanced diet. But in this case, it's almost impossible to get enough magnesium taken through your food alone because our soil is so overworked and mineral depleted. Fortunately, Bioptimizers has a great solution. Magnesium Breakthrough has seven types of magnesium, and it's specially formulated to reach every tissue in your body. It gives you access to the full spectrum of magnesium magnesium, which can dramatically improve your overall health. Bioptimizers is having an incredible Black Friday special offer starting November 21st through the 29th. You can get Magnesium Breakthrough and all the products at 25% off. This is the best deal they run each year. Go to bioptimizers.com forward slash wellfed and use the code wellfed10 to get 25% off your order. And if you're listening to this at a different time, you can still use the code wellfed10 for 10% off. If you don't love what you get, you can get a full refund, no questions asked. Again, that's buy optimizers, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash wellfed and use the code wellfed10 to get 25% off November 21st to 29th. You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com. And you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Hello and welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 403. I am your host, Noelle Tarr of coconutsandkettlebells.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a National Strength and Conditioning Association certified personal trainer. I am doing a renewed episode this week, one of my favorite episodes that many of you have maybe not even heard before or you've forgotten it. So it's time to listen to it again. This is going to be with Dr. Stacy Sims, and we're going to be talking all about why women are not small men, specifically when it comes to nutrition and fitness. And she is really the purveyor of cycle syncing, specifically when it comes to exercise and fitness. She was uh, she's well known for her famous TED Talk, Women Are Not Small Men. She's a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist, and she really aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. And her contributions have been incredible to the international research environment and the sports nutrition industry because she's really established a niche in sports nutrition and really recognizing the sex differences in training nutrition and health for women. So really excited because we dove deep in some really interesting topics in this episode. 
taking some time off, hopefully to get my voice back, but also to enjoy Thanksgiving with my family. If you're listening to this live, you will know that I love a good sale. So I will be emailing out some um, newsletters just with Black Friday sales and stocking stuffer ideas and stuff like that. If you want to get those emails this week, head over to coconutsandcatabells.com slash cookies, which is my free recipe, cookie recipe book with a bunch of holiday cookie recipes, including my <laughs> my beloved edible cookie dough. If you want edible cookie dough, it's like the Capello's. It's a Capello's knockoff. Uh, if you want edible cookie dough and nine other amazing holiday cookie recipes, go to coconutsandcatabells.com slash cookies. You can download my free cookie recipe book, but you also get some emails from me coming up. And uh, I hope to catch up with you there. For now, let's get to the interview. Welcome, Dr. Stacy Sims. I am so excited to have you here. And it's so cool that we get to talk in completely different time zones and continents. <laughs> I know. It's awesome. I'm future girl and you can tell me what's happening. <laughs> Yesterday. It's great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this because we are so much on the same page with regards of um, what women should be thinking and how we should all be treating ourselves. So I'm very excited about this. Yay. So I, um, yeah, this is just one of my favorite talk topics and something I wish I knew more about when I was training in my 20s. So I'm thrilled just to get this information out to more women and so many people in my community. We're like, you've got to get on Dr. Stacy Sims. You've got to, you know, have you seen her? You you would love her. And I instantly fell in love when I brought up all of your stuff and listened to your TED Talk. So first, talk to me about how you came to the realization that when it comes to research and science, specifically around nutrition and fitness, women are not included or, you know, they're considered outliers, which is crazy. Yeah, uh, it all started when I was going through university as an athlete and trying to get answers for myself. And at the time on the on the crew team or the rowing team, trying to get answers for my teammates. And you're in these classes that are supposed to be, you know, the education about metabolism and training and they're teaching you this stuff and you're like wait a second that doesn't quite work what's going on and then and then you get the answers oh we don't know enough about men why do you want to study women and oh well your results are an outlier and it's like that's just not right so you start digging through the literature and the research and going i'm not represented in any of this i'm not a 18 to 22 year old college age male I'm an 18 to 22 year old college age female and things are different. Um, And so the more you start digging, the more you realize that everything pretty much that we know has been generalized from male data or has been based on a study designed through a male lens. Even if they do include women, they don't include women at the time where we're most different from men. So, you know, effectively, most of the research is done on two weeks of our menstrual cycle instead of looking at us from a holistic standpoint. So it's been the drive for my entire academic and sporting career to get the answers for to really maximize our performance potential because I really don't think that women have quite reached it yet because of all the training and nutrition guidelines and habits that have been pushed to us that aren't really applicable to us. Hmm. And why is it that women, we're so limited to how women are studied? And like you said, it's limited to this very narrow two weeks of our menstrual cycle, which, by the way, no woman lives, um, you know, only in two weeks of her menstrual cycle. So why is that? 
Uh, a lot of it comes from like the social constructs of, of women, like women have often been deemed as being delicate flowers or, you know, they don't want to be involved and we don't have enough funding. So it's too difficult to study women because they have a menstrual cycle. So there's a whole bunch of excuses, but no one's really gone and said, Hey, you know what? Women need to be studied and yeah, we need funding. We have funding. And instead of a one month timeline, we have three months because that's the adequate design to study women because mm. most study designs are still you know, thought about from that male view of, okay, we have this short amount of time. We want to answer this question. We got to get participants in and out in a, in a week and then have a week washout in another week. And if we include women, we have to look at hormones and how that might affect things. So it's just doesn't fit into the timeline. So we're not going to include them. Oh. Or, oh yeah, if we get women on the pill, then their hormones are a complete steady state so we can include them in the study design because they don't really change. Hmm. That's one of the biggest problems. Yeah. So let's start with nutrition because there's a lot of things that you know a lot about. But I think probably nutrition is a great place to start because many women in this community have spent a lot of time trying to dial in their nutrition. And many women in, in general have been told that they need to be on a diet to be healthy. And they've likely bounced from diet to diet, struggling to find something that works. And maybe it's negatively impact their hormones or their thyroid or their training. So when it comes to setting yourself up for success, what are some general things women need to consider when it comes to both macronutrients, so, you know, carbs, protein, fat, and then also, uh, this is, sorry, this is a huge question, but then also micronutrients. Are there specific micronutrients that women need more of than men? Oh, these are loaded questions. We can have... <laughs> Five podcasts worth, worth of stuff on this. Um, I'll, I'll start with like the basic premise where we are born with sex differences, like sex differences in muscle enzyme activity, sex differences in mitochondrial proteins that allow us to use more free fatty acids. Um, we can't carbo load because of different muscle enzymes. So, you know, there's all these inherent differences that make slight tweaks. Uh, other things like, um, I guess the biggest is the threshold for um, nutrient status. So we have a thing called kispeptin. And kispeptin is this neuropeptide that's very sensitive to nutrient status. In men, the threshold isn't as sensitive as it is for women. So when women start to have low carb intake or they start not fueling appropriately for their training and recovering from it, it perturbs kispeptin. And what happens when you perturb kispeptin is it signals the body to conserve everything. So your thyroid starts to go down. Your um, LH surge doesn't happen. So you don't have ovulation. You don't have progesterone. So this is downward spiral that can happen within four days of not fueling appropriately. But for men, that threshold isn't as sensitive. So again, this is why you see all these great changes that happen with all these weird diets because of the male data. When we talk about protein and protein intake... Um, women use more amino acids during exercise than men. We also use more free fatty acids, so our protein needs are greater. We also have times during our menstrual cycle where we're building tissue. This is the whole thing in the second half of the cycle where progesterone breaks down tissue, especially muscle tissue, to free amino acids to be the building block of uterine lining. So we need more protein during that time frame. 
recovery window post-exercise as well. Like women come back down to metabolic baseline a lot faster than men. So we have a shorter window to feed ourselves, to overcome the stress of training, to garner fitness adaptations. So when we're talking about diet and macronutrients and micronutrients, it's, you know, it's a little bit phase specific of when we can access carbohydrates and when we need more carbohydrates and protein. But in general, I tell women across the board, you need more protein than what you think you need across the entire menstrual cycle, paying very close attention in the late phases or the, about the week or so before your period starts when your body is in this continuous breakdown state with elevated cortisol and progesterone breaking down more tissue. Carbohydrate is another thing to, to be concerned about or, or consider, not really be concerned about. Because we can't access carbohydrate very well when we're exercising, when estrogen and progesterone start to come up. You need to supply more so that your body has available carbohydrates so it can hit intensities. It can do what it needs to do during training and during recovery. When we talk about micronutrients, and this one's interesting because there's a little bit of, of you know, everyone's like, oh, you all need, need magnesium. You all need vitamin D. But when you look specifically again about the menstrual cycle, our body uses more magnesium and more zinc when it's building the uterine lining because it's taking cells to put into the tissue to build the uterine lining, but it's also taking it from the immune system and from the immune cells. So if we boost our magnesium and zinc during the weeks leading up to our period, then we don't get into this compromise between building uterine lining, which takes precedence, and our immune system. And then iron is another big thing. It's not about the fact that you have a period that plagues a lot of endurance athletes. It's the fact that we have this inflammation that comes up. And when we have this inflammation that comes up from training, our gut can't absorb iron very well. So we don't absorb it well enough to stay on top of it, which is why we see a lot of low-grade iron deficiency in female athletes. It, and it's not about oral supplementation. It's about the fact that we have to look at using like vitamin D, vitamin D-rich foods to reduce that hepcidin response so our bodies can actually absorb it. So these are just small sex differences that are, are very impactful. And we can go on and on and on about all the little nuances about it, but those tend to be the big rocks that women should kind of understand and take on board to be able to recover better and feel better and maximize their health while they're training. You guys know how much I love my hair. I have invested quite a bit of time and effort into it over the years and more recently because my hair has been thinning and been a bit more dry. One of the things that I have been thinking about for a long time is cotton pillowcases, which seems like an odd thing to be thinking about, but cotton actually absorbs moisture and can dry out your skin and hair. If you've ever woken up with frizzy hair or a bunch of sheet marks on your face, that's because of cotton. So we did a lot of research and recently made the upgrade to 100% mulberry silk pillowcases from a brand called Blissy. Silk actually reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage because it keeps the moisture in your hair. And get this, if you're doing a skincare routine at night, but then sleeping on cotton, that cotton is actually absorbing your skincare products. Cotton causes more friction against your skin than silk does, which can lead to irritation and it can accentuate the appearance of lines, wrinkles, and creases. 
All of this is to say sleeping on silk has already improved my hair. I no longer wake up with sheet marks on my face or creases in my hair, which was happening every morning. The 100% Milberry silk that Blissey uses is naturally hypoallergenic, cooling, and unlike other silk pillowcases, Blissey's are machine washable and durable. This is why I chose Blissey and this is why I love them. Blissey has a ton of different prints and colors and they make great gifts because there's a ton of options for literally anyone. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissey.com forward slash well-fed and get an additional 30% off with our special code. That's blissey, so B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com forward slash well-fed. Use the code WELLFED to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair will thank you. So you mentioned something really important about protein. And for quite some time, I think the... Hmm, maybe the di- the dieting advice has always been, um, you know, women don't need a ton of protein. We're kind of told men need protein, but women don't. So, and you also mentioned, which I did not know this, but progesterone breaks down muscle mass. So w- when it comes to carbohydrate and protein intake, should women be cycling that according to their menstrual cycle? For example, they women should be eating more protein when progesterone is higher, which is that second phase of the menstrual cycle right before your period? Or, you know, should women be eating more carbohydrates at a specific time? How do you recommend cycling macronutrients according to, you know, what phase you're in? Yeah, so um, I tend to start it by doing it in and around training. So in the low hormone phase, protein, yeah, you need protein post-exercise for that acute response. Then when we start to get to the high hormone phase, I'm like, we need to make carbohydrate available. So we need to make sure that you have some before, during, and definitely after. And protein important at regular doses across the day. So we start with before and after training, and then we look at each meal and snack is making sure that you get a good hit of protein to keep amino acid levels high so that you're not compromising your tissue. Um, And when people start getting into that habit, then naturally it falls into a a more of a cycling with your cycle aspect. Do you have any, and this is what everybody's asking, is like, how much protein should I be consuming? Do you have any general recommendations for how much protein women should consume? Yeah, and this goes against what most of the, you know, like CCSD and and, um, most of the dietetics groups will tell you because they're learning from textbooks and and not looking at the sports-specific research. So we look at a lot of the research that's come out, especially um, out of University of Florida and looking at protein needs. Female athletes are looking at that 2 to 2.3 grams per kilogram of body weight a day. Higher end in the high hormone phase, lower end in the low hormone phase, which tends to be a lot if you're thinking about, oh, gosh, that's 150-ish grams of protein. And people may hit the 90 gram. So you're looking at quite a bit of a protein boost. And when you start looking at what does that mean, what does that look like, portion sizes, it can be a little bit overwhelming. And when we start saying, well, everything has a little bit of protein. So if you're looking at sprouted grain bread and legumes and nuts and some branched amino acids and collagen and normal protein, then you end up getting it. And so it's just more of that education factor of, okay, how, what does this look like and and how do I implement it? Hmm. Yeah. So, um, 
I want to jump into something quickly just because this has been a topic that I think is very relevant and it will obviously play into some of our future questions when we're talking about fueling, pre and post workout. So intermittent fasting um, is obviously pretty popular right now and a lot of women are trying it. I think a lot of even athletes have been trying to incorporate it in. What does the literature say about intermittent fasting for women and have you found that it works or doesn't work for, um, you know, both women who are working out and women who are doing maybe more working out like with, you know, in collegiate uh, sports and stuff like that as athletes? Yeah, so I think the intermittent fasting for the athletic population is one of the big, biggest disservices that you can have for women promoting mm-hmm. it in in the athletic world. So if we look at the literature on intermittent fasting, it's primarily on sedentary, overweight women and men um, who don't do the exercise component of stress, or you have recreational older women, again, where exercise is not the component of stress. But when you start translating intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating into the athletic population, uh, we see a, a lot of issues with it. So as I was talking about kispeptin being very sensitive to nutrient status, if a woman has a long time-restricted amount of, of not eating and then goes into training, they're training in a fasted state. Women already have elevated cortisol. They already have issues, um, well, I shouldn't say issues, but their body's already predisposed to using free fatty acids and not carbohydrates. So it becomes an incredible amount of stress. And the body stays in this breakdown state or this catabolic state, which is a very high stress state. And we know that the longer you stay in a catabolic state, the more it predisposes your body to get into the low energy availability repercussions, which leads to hypothalamic amenorrhea, red S, all these things. And it's way more sensitive in women than it is in men. So when we look at intermittent fasting and training, A lot of times when women go, oh, I'm doing intermittent fasting and I'm doing these training sessions or I'm delaying my food intake post-exercise because I exercised in the the restricted time period, Mm -hmm. like, why did did you train? Because we don't get fitter during exercise. Exercise is that stress. We get fitter when we give our body the ability to recover properly and fuel properly. So if you're doing fasted training or delaying your food intake, your body is staying in this incredible breakdown state. How is it going to recover and get fitter if you're not fueling it? And when people are like, oh, I, you know, it didn't even dawn on them because they're trying to mix health, you know, health research into athletic research and they don't cross. If you don't exercise, intermittent fasting can be beneficial because it does give the body some autophagy and it does give the body time to recover and regenerate. But when you look at the exercise data, exercise in itself is a fasted state and creates autophagy. So you're already kind of in that state when you're exercising and you're getting the benefits of the health and the media of intermittent fasting when you exercise and the longevity of exercise is, is, far superior than the intermittent fasting. So it's this really interesting space where people get these mixed messages from the fitness industry and from the health messages of you need to do intermittent fasting and then pull it immediately over into the athletic world. And it just doesn't work. 
I see it, it might work for you know, two to three months. But after that, you start to see women who are in this incredible fatigued state where they're in this chronic inflammation, where their cortisol levels are elevated, they're putting on belly fat, they can't build lean mass, they're not adapting to training, they're getting slower, and they're wondering what's going on. And most of the time, the response is, I need to train harder. And it just gets into this vicious cycle. And if we were just to fuel appropriately for the training stress and overcome that training stress, then it's amazing the difference that women find. I think you just brought up a really good point and hopefully something that is like kind of a light bulb moment for people, which is health research and research that shows health benefits for a specific population doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be healthy for everybody. And health and fitness research don't always intersect or uh, they you, you can't look at all the research that's been done and say, well, that's healthy, that's healthy, that's healthy, that's healthy. In other words, that's promoted health in a specific individual when applied in a very specific way and do all of that stuff and expect it to all work together and it all be healthy. So, right. um I, yeah, I think that that was that. And when you look at the research, you also have to look at you when you when you read these headlines and you see, you know, X, Y and Z benefit. You also have to look at the subjects, which is, of course, what you have been preaching the whole time. You have to look at the subjects. What was their starting point? Who they are? And, it, you know, ha- sure, lots of things can promote health for specific individuals, especially people who are dealing with like metabolic conditions. There can be specific interventions. Um But that doesn't apply to you just because it's a headline that's being shared or talked about um, on social media. So exactly. And this is one of one of the examples I use, like when I'm teaching um, classes is there was a headline that came out on like um, the well and good out of the New York Times talking Mm -hmm. about the dose of protein post exercise. And they're looking at young versus old young men, old men, young women older women. And they had a 20 and 30 gram dose and they showed that the 30 gram dose did nothing for um, the older women. So they're like, and the 20 gram dose did nothing for the older women. So the conclusion was older women don't need to worry about protein post-exercise because there are no, um, you know, there's no examples of protein synthesis in the muscle or muscle recovery. So you should just eat within a reasonable time. And when I look at it, I'm like, because you didn't dose them high enough, they didn't Mm -hmm. respond because the dose wasn't high enough for that particular population. So the translation into what's appropriate was completely amiss because they didn't do the study design properly. They didn't really look and say, okay, well, an older female athlete is different from an older male athlete. And this is the way things get put into myth and practice when you start looking at these headlines. It's kind of scary. It's kind of scary because we have this one tiny thing and it becomes a headline and people like make big changes about their life based on very inaccurate (laughs) research, inaccurate headlines. I know. It's the dissemination and the translation that tends to create a lot of issues. Yeah. 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 So fueling pre and post workout. Should women be eating always before working out? after working out or both? Well, in the, well, depends on what you mean by eating before. So if you've had something to eat within two hours, especially in the low hormone phase, you're good to go. 
but post-exercise, everyone needs to eat. Um, again, it's to stop that breakdown state. We know that from recent research, if you have adequate calorie intake, but you bookend it on either end of the day and the middle of the day, you remain in this high breakdown state because you're not eating. could be because you're busy or you forgot to pack your lunch or whatever it is, but you say, yeah, I've eaten enough. I got enough calories, I've reached my macros for the day. You're still putting yourself in a low energy state, which means that you have thyroid dysfunction, endocrine dysfunction, and you start suffering from these low energy availability aspects. So when we start to address it and say it's more about the timing, not about the total intake, timing in and around training to give your body the fuel it needs to hit intensities that you want. So you get the training stress, that strong training stress, and then recover from it. That's how you get fit, fitter. It's not about I did training and then I ate at the end of the day. So I got my calories and my training in because you're not going to adapt. You're not going to get the training adaptations you want. You're not going to get fitter. You shouldn't have trained that day if that's what you're going to do. So when we talk about fueling before and after a workout, it's really critical post-exercise to stop that breakdown state. And if you wake up first thing in the morning to go training, you need to have something. Bring that cortisol down. Don't perturb that kisspeptin so that you aren't putting yourself in a breakdown state before you go get into a bigger breakdown state and then not recover from it. If you've eaten you know, within two hours, sweet. You can go into your training session. If it's longer than 60 minutes, then you might want to think about taking some carbohydrate, but definitely recover within 30 minutes. Have your breakfast within 30 minutes if it's first thing in the morning. Have, um, you know, like a protein recovery, some yogurt, if you want a protein shake, something like that within that 30 minutes, and then have your real meal within two hours. But definitely need fuel on board on both sides of, of the training spectrum. So you mentioned that eating before workouts is crucial. Now, when I was doing my endurance stuff in triathlons, I knew that that was important. I just couldn't stomach it well. Um, do you, especially when women now, like a lot my community is, of course, following mostly a holistic whole foods diet. And so eating like a gel or whatever isn't necessarily what we want to be doing first thing in the morning. If women are getting up, they're doing high intensity training first thing and they have a good meal afterwards. What do you recommend and what is kind of the macronutrient um, ratios that we should be thinking about when we're considering that that pre-workout meal and even the post-workout meal? Yeah, so pre-workout doesn't have to be a lot. You need maybe 120, 130 calories to, to just bring your blood sugar up. Hmm. Um, it could be half a banana. It could be some sweetened almond milk um, in your coffee with maybe um, a, a couple of uh, teaspoons of nut butter or a couple bites of, of fig or something like that. Um, like I'm infamous for making a cold brew espresso and putting protein powder and almond milk. And that's my go-to first thing in the morning. So I'm getting some protein and I'm getting some carbohydrate, but not a lot because I really don't feel hungry till 10 o'clock in the morning, but I train early. Um, and so it's just something small that isn't overwhelming. It doesn't take a lot of digestion, but the goal is bringing your blood sugar up and dropping your cortisol. So you kind of have to kind of figure out what might work for you. A lot of people have luck with, um, blending a, a cold banana and some almond milk and then adding a shot of espresso and having that in the fridge. So it's kind of like a, um, 
uh, a latte, so to speak, before you hit out the head out the door. Uh, so like I said, it doesn't have to be a lot. You're looking more at what do I do to bring blood sugar up and drop cortisol post-exercise is a different story. So this is where we know that we want to have good hits of protein and a little bit of carbohydrate for reparation, bringing amino acid profile up for our brain, for central nervous system, um, reset and, and eliminating fatigue as well as stimulating muscle protein synthesis. So it can be, uh, you know, like a, a single serving of Faja yogurt, but you also want to add maybe a few almonds or something just to boost that protein intake to hit that 30 gram mark. And then you have a window of opportunity for your next real meal within 90 minutes. So it's that acute hit of protein with a little bit of carbohydrate after exercise that extends your recovery window. Otherwise, you're shortening it to 30 to 40 minutes. And most people, especially after a run or high-intensity session, aren't that hungry in the first mm. 30 to 40 minutes after exercise. Yeah, that sucks. Because <laughs> you know yeah. you need to eat and you want to enjoy eating, right? Like we like we, – it's it's fun to eat food and fuel and, and it's <laughs> you're not hungry. It's just annoying. Right. So you yeah, got – beautiful. But yeah, yeah, and I'm becoming a big fan of blue spirulina because it hmm. doesn't taste gra- grassy like green spirulina, but it has all the really good stuff. So it has iron and, and protein and all sorts of great micronutrients. And it's a bright blue color. It's my daughter's favorite color. Hmm. So I'll, I'll stir it into yogurt and put berries in it. And it's beautiful. I'm like, but I'm not hungry. I don't want to eat it. <laughs> i got to eat it. <laughs> and my daughter's like, it's beautiful. Mommy, eat I'm like so beautiful but i'm not hungry all right so let's um let's just jump into questions of our from our community and and i I think i want to jump right into some questions around cycle syncing in general and maybe cycle syncing workouts so we've done podcasts previously talking about the phases of the menstrual cycle and kind of syncing our workouts so that in the first half of our menstrual cycle, so the follicular phase, we're, we're building and most times we feel better and we can do more high intensity training. And then the second half of our cycle, which is the luteal phase, we're kind of feeling a little bit, um, you know, we kind of like ramp down, so to speak, and we have a little bit of a rest time right before a period or when it starts. So that's kind of I mean, I'm sure I would love for you to expound and talk a little bit more, but I know that a lot of women listening have probably tried this cadence or kind of going with this flow, understanding their own physiology, but also kind of going off of their own body cues. I kind of consider it to be like intuitive fitness, so to speak, where you're you can kind of assess where where I am, where what's my energy level and where I then, you know check it off according to where you're at in your menstrual cycle and then do fitness accordingly. Um, Yeah. Okay. So one of the questions um, first is from Allie. She says, I'm new to cycle syncing my workouts. I know I can push it harder days 7 to 20, but days 20 to 30-ish, I find myself lagging, especially in cardio. What's your advice for breaking ground with fitness goals in the second half of your cycle while still listening to your body? Yeah. So um, this comes up because when we're looking at a longer cycle, it's the follicular phase that extends. So the luteal phase usually doesn't really vary from a 14 day, might be 15 or might be 13, but it's pretty standard. 
So we're looking at how good she feels leading up to day 20. She's still in that low hormone phase where she can hit it hard and she can recover well. Getting into the last 10 days before a period starts, this is post-ovulation, progesterone's come up, estrogen's come up. So she's should be looking more at steady state. So you're looking at steady state, not VO2, not high intensity. And then uh, about the five days before a period starts, this is where we deload, where we're looking at running drills. We're looking at technique, mobility, flexibility, and that should be the focus. So it's kind of changing what the fitness goal is, because if you're hitting yourself so hard during this time where you feel flat and awful, again, you're not going to gain ground from a fitness standpoint. You're just going to run yourself into being tired. If we look at cycle syncing and hit it hard in that follicular phase, recover well around ovulation, some women feel bulletproof so they can have another hard day. Other people feel good a couple of days after ovulation, so then they can have another hard training session. Then we start to taper it more to tempo work or to, you know, the 15-minute steady state work, finding that sweet spot where you're just at or below threshold, so you're not overly stimulatory, um, but you're still getting good development to push that threshold up. And then when you get into the later phases of the luteal phase, this is again, where you're working running drills and technique and mobility, because all of that helps when you get into the low hormone phase and want to hit it hard again. Mm. I think you touched on something interesting, which is we have this idea that we only make gains when we're going hard, (laughs) when we're hitting PRs and when we're pushing ourselves to, you know, redline. That's where we make our gains and that's where we grow. And that's just not true. So it's almost it's it's like a shift in mindset because you can make a ton of gain from your rest. Like you said earlier, rest is where you make your gains. So if you're resting appropriately and you're doing drills and you're working on mobility and flexibility and doing the steady state stuff, you are making gains from that as well. And you're not going to make gains anyway, which you said. It's like you're not going to make gains anyway if you're pushing yourself when you're feeling flatlined and trying. You're not going to like it's that's not going to take you to the next level anyway. So love no. that. And, and then when you hit the low hormone phase and you've been pushing yourself hard, like mentally, you're not there. You're like, oh, I just can't go hard. Mm. I'm so mentally like completely effed on that and I just can't do it. So it's like, yeah, don't push when you feel flat. Just dial it back a bit. Like go for that embarrassingly slow run because that's going to be way better for adaptation than trying to do a 30-minute tempo run when you're like, I just can't do it. This is from Dixie. She says, I know to take it easier while bleeding and right before my period starts, but that feels like a significant amount of time each month. What do I eat to support my body so that I can still lift weights for those around seven to 10 days a month? So there should, should there be specific considerations when we're talking about eating in that chill phase, so to speak, of our menstrual cycle? Yeah. So um, one of the myths is that you can't go hard when you're bleeding. So this is more of a psychological aspect. And and there's been a lot of behavioral stuff that's come out recently about physiologically what you can do versus mentally. And yes, mental stuff does have a big play in it. But if we start to change the conversation about taking it easy while you're bleeding – 
unless you have really, really bad period cramps, then it opens up the conversation of, oh, my period hit, my hormones are low, I can hit it hard again. So it's looking at, okay, yeah, there's that long time before your period starts and the days of your period. But if you don't suffer from meharanja, which is heavy bleeding and really bad cramping, then there's no reason why you can't go hard. In the days leading up, this is where you're working the technique and stuff. And again, it's all about protein. The more protein you get in your system, the more you can maintain lean mass and work that body fat to be less of an of an implication so you can reduce the body fat a bit and it also helps with total reparation um, when you're in the deload phase people try to cut back on their calories but your body's trying to repair so it needs calories and your metabolism is boosted by 100 to 120 calories a day in the high hormone phase because your body's building tissue so you need to supply fuel so don't be afraid that oh my gosh i can't eat because i'm not training as hard and i'm um you know i'm deloading it's focus on protein get some good food in make sure you're taking care of your gut microbiome by eating healthy fruit and veggies and all those things come into play and really help when you're in that mental space of I'm not training hard and I shouldn't be eating, which is something we need to kind of break that cycle. Yes, that's such good insight. When you're on your rest days, your body is in recovery mode and still needs calories and protein. So you yes. don't backstep on those days just because you're not training. So I love that. This one's from Sarah, and this is an interesting question. And I'm sure a lot of women kind of feel this way as they're feeling their way around how they actually feel in the different phases of their menstrual cycle. She says, I've tried cycle syncing with my workouts, but honestly, I don't feel much difference in my energy levels throughout my cycle. I feel like sometimes I'm forcing myself to do slower and less intense exercise like yoga during my luteal phase and period because that's what I'm supposed to do, even if I feel like I have the same amount of energy in my follicular phase. Is it better to to trust the science of cycle syncing and take it easy during the second half of my cycle or just listen to my body and honor its energy levels. Um, so every woman is different. And this is why I tell people you want to track your own cycle and see how you feel across it. Some women feel really awful in the middle around ovulation, but then feel really good in the few days leading up to their period. So then you switch it up and go, okay, well, around this middle part, this is where I'm going to have my deload. And then I know that I can, I feel really good. I can hit intensities and such in those few days leading up to my period. Because the rate at which the hormones drop is really individual. So you might have a time of two to three days as those hormones are dropping before you actually get a prostaglandin release to bleed. So you're technically in a low hormone state before your period starts, which might be where she is. So taking account to how you feel and tracking across your menstrual cycle to find the days where you feel really fantastic to push it and the days you feel flat to listen to your body is one of the the best ways to implement that cycle syncing. Mm, I like that. This one's from Julie. She says, yay, I love her book. I've tried so hard to follow her plan, food and hydration-wise, but I'm still struggling with HA. It almost seems like food isn't the sole culprit that I need to reduce my triathlon training. She says, thank you, Dr. Sims. I never miss my post-workout protein. Awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, so recovery from HA is an interesting one. Uh, 
what we have found works for the most part because I work with a lot of professional athletes who cannot stop. Like they can't break their contract. They have to keep racing. They have to keep performing and we're trying to get their periods back. So we drop the volume and we make sure that we dial in that food in and around every training session. So there, we keep them out of that catabolic state as much as possible. And we dial back the volume, but maintain strength training and a little bit of intensity to not lose that top end. Because when we keep people out of a, of a catabolic state, um, and by dropping volume, you're reducing um, fuel depletion. And it all comes back to kispeptin. So if we are providing our body with fuel and we keep ourselves out of that catabolic state, then kispeptin's like, hey, we got enough, I can turn that luteinizing hormone back on. If we get luteinizing hormone uh, pulse going again, then we get estrogen coming up, then we get ovulation, and then our periods come back. It takes between three and six months. So the more you're onto it of dialing back the volume and dialing in food in around every training session, the better chance you have of LH surge coming back and getting your periods back. It's a short amount of time that you have to really focus on it, but it's worth it to get your periods back. So you keep saying keep your body out of a catabolic state. I know a lot of women who have HA who are also exercising are probably like, okay, I need to stay out of this catabolic state. So in other words, no intermittent fasting. And does right. the, is it only is keeping yourself out of catabolic state all about just fueling and keeping food, in, you know, available, energy available? It's an energy availability thing. You also have to take into account life stress because if uh -huh. you have a very stressful life and you're always in the sympathetic drive, then you're also contributing to that catabolic stress state. So, you know, women in the in the nature of our global society, especially COVID times, we're in this little bit of an up state, the sympathetic drive state. Um, so we need to take time out to have more mindfulness and to, to activate that parasympathetic, that rest and digest. So not eating two hours before bed, even if we're talking about energy availability, because we want to be able to activate that parasympathetic response, because um, that also helps drive vagal nerve, which also helps drive um, the endocrine system to coming back. So there are small other nuances within the HA recovery main you know, mainframe or, or scope of what we're trying to find is reducing overall stress, activating parasympathetic responses and fueling in and around each session really to get more balance across the board so that your hormones and your endocrine system goes, yes, I have enough. I can um, account for being healthy and can reproduce and have full access to everything I need to be as a woman from a health standpoint, as well as accommodate this extra stress from external, uh, you know, work stress, life stress, and training stress. Hmm. This is a, a pretty popular question. I have two that are very related. Um, Ashley says, can we talk about HIIT training and strength training and how to determine when too much is too much, even if your rest is adequate. And I got a follow-up question, which was, how do women, what what considerations should women be making when we're, when we're thinking about training and making sure we don't fall into, in quotations, adrenal fatigue? So how do women know and what do we need to consider when talking about, okay, we're doing this intense training, 
But we really don't want to, you know, stress out our body or overstress our body. And we want to be making sure that we're resting enough. Yeah. So uh, this comes down to the sex differences in muscle enzymes. So women tend to be able to hit it hard for two days in a row and then need significant recovery. Where men, they can go three to four days, really intense, have one day off, then hit it again. So when we look at intensity sessions, um, I often look at women who come and you know say, I'm doing CrossFit and boot camp four to five days a week, and I'm heavy lifting three or four days a week, but I'm not seeing any fitness gains. And it is primarily because they're in – they're not hitting it hard enough to be high intensity because they can't polarize their training because they spend too much time in that 80% zone. Mm. So if we look, what is high intensity and what is heavy lifting? So high intensity is that top, top end, that 90%, the whole session with a warm up and a cool down might be 30 minutes max. So when you start going up, up, above and beyond that, then you know that you're not quite high intensity. You're in more of that kind of gray zone stuff that we don't want to be in. And if you're looking at, okay, I really love this class or I love this, um, you know, this CrossFit or the functional fitness class that puts me in this high intensity, then you're looking at two days max together, two days off, two days on, two days off to be able to recover fully from that. Ideally, you wouldn't have more than three high intensity, true high intensity sessions in a week. And we're talking about strength training. You can complement it because if you're doing the strength training from a pure strength standpoint, it's not cardiovascularly taxing, nor is it fuel depleting. It's more neuromuscular. So we're looking at that really heavy zero to six reps at 80% or higher one rep max. And that takes a very short amount of time too, because you can only lift so much until you get fatigued. So that might be a 20 or 25 minute session. So when you're complementing it as well, you also have to say, okay, what's my goal? Is my goal hitting that high intensity to boost my anaerobic capacity or is my goal to build pure strength and get stronger in my muscle contraction? Because the order of exercise that you do also influences. So we know that if you do high intensity and then strength training, then the strength signals stay on. If you do strength training and then high intensity, then you're dampening the strength signals. So phasing and figuring out how you're going to scope your week for what signaling you want also comes into play for recovery. Um, it's a kind of a long convoluted exp- uh, way of explaining like you can do too much if you're trying to push it all into one one week mm-hmm. where you really have to think about what's my goal in this period of time and then phase it accordingly. I think it's from what we've been told, especially I think the CrossFit era sort of um, just told women that they need to be doing high intensity training four to five days a week. I know that's just been the norm. That's what I did in my 20s. And ultimately, that's what tanked me. But that was and I even remember talking to the strength coaches back then, like, you know, what's the typical cadence? What should I be considering? And they said they always recommend three days on one day off three days on one day off. There is no way I could manage that right now. I mean, there's it's no I mean, and I even remember saying like, Gosh, by Wednesday, because it was always Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And it was like, gosh, by Wednesday, I can barely move my legs. And it's no wonder that I wasn't really seeing any gains. And my body was just inflamed and tired all the time. It's like, doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. 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 
That's exactly it. Yep. It's the, you want to think about how hard can I push it? Because if it's a high intensity day, you need to be able to push the high intensity. And Mm -hmm. if you wake up and you're like, uh, I don't think I can, then you shouldn't because then it's kind of a moot point for training. You should do something different that's going to move with your body, make you feel good and give you the benefit of that training session. Hmm. We are coming up on time here, but I got a couple more questions. One of them is from Katie Harris. She said, how do I make more protein a way of life? My protein needs have increased in pregnancy and I'm struggling to get enough in. Yeah, this is where you look across the board at, at what has protein in it. So it's not the focus on meat and eggs and all the typical animal products. It's like wide variety. You can get protein from so many different sources, um, green peas. You can look at legumes. You can look at nuts, seeds, chia seeds, nut butters. Um, you can look at uh, supplementation, sprouted grain breads, ancient grains, quinoa, um, just pretty much Every plant has some protein in it too. So it doesn't have to be, okay, here is this palm-sized piece of chicken that has 22 grams of protein and I'm going to eat it because that's my protein need. It's just wide variety of getting protein from little things all the time. Help really help build protein intake across the day. This is from Ruby. She says, how do I adjust my nutrition when I am and my exercise for breastfeeding. So if a woman is breastfeeding and she's postpartum, should she, are there any special considerations to make, you know, let's just say she's gotten her cycle back. What are the additional nutrition um, considerations to make? It's uh, primarily protein and hydration because uh, in order to keep breast milk um, going, you need really good hydration. So staying on top of hydration and protein as well for um, supporting you and your lean mass and also supporting all the cell matrix that go into the nutrients of the breast milk and then the timing as well. So um, things do uh, cross into the breast milk. So supplementation you want to avoid really because uh, most of the supplements aren't tested unless you're looking uh, specifically at some of the cleaner um, protein powders that are available, um, trying to time your training and and um, recovery away from when you need to breastfeed or you're pumping first and then training. Hmm. Uh, but the big, biggest nutrition considerations is, is you know, a whole, as you, as you are well aware in it and have um, prefaced quite a bit, is the whole foods diet to make sure that you're maintaining gut health, you're getting a good variety of, of, of nutrient density across the board, maintaining protein and hydration. Hmm. I know you have an entire course on this. This is our last question. But for perimenopause and menopause, obviously cycles are regular and it's kind of things are all over the place. Hormones are all over, over the place. Are there special things when we're talking about working out? Should what what can women think or what should they know when considering their training and, you know, not throwing themselves into like more hormonal imbalance and and uh, adrenal issues and cortisol issues, because that's already all over the place. You know, women going through perimenopause and menopause, what considerations should women going through that make when considering? fitness. Yeah. So, um, we know that sex hormones affect almost every cell in the body and their receptor sites are 
almost every cell of the body. So when we start looking at uh, perimenopause where you have hormone fluctuations and different ratios that hit and then postmenopause where they flatline, we really have to look at exercise and nutrition as taking the place of what these hormones used to do. So estrogen can stimulate satellite cell and build lean mass because it's anabolic in nature and progesterone breaks things down. They're also responsible for like glucose control and glucose metabolism. So there's a whole cadre of things that these hormones do. So when women hit perimenopause, they might still have a period even though it's very irregular and the bleeding pattern changes. So we know that those ratios are changing. So instead of trying to cycle sync, um, it's better to look at it as doing a two-week block and then a one-week deload. So you're absorbing the training. And in that two-week block, regardless of if you're a marathoner, ultra runner, 10K runner, or 5K runner, during the week, you're looking at that polarized high intensity and heavy lifting. And then every 10 to 14 days, putting time on the feet with a very long, slow run. Maybe that comes on the Wednesday of your deload week. So the focus becomes on that very long, slow, embarrassingly slow time on the feet type run. But the rest of the training is more, more that polarized training that high, high intensity and really low, low recovery and heavy lifting because those are the kinds of stresses that your body needs because these hormones used to do what this now training does. So interesting. The course is Menopause for Athletes. You also have a course all about women are not small men. We will link to your book, Roar, which is a bestseller. And I think I just saw it was introduced. It's definitely international now. Was it Germany? Where did you just start selling that book? I think it's in German now and and it's also Portuguese. So it's in Brazil and Portugal. Wow. That's uh, amazing. And then in July, the follow-up comes out, and it's all about perimenopause and menopause. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, DrStacySims.com. Where can people find, I mean, we'll link to, of course, all of the, all of the things um, that I just mentioned, but where's the best place to um, find more about you and what you're doing next? Um, so social media is the Dr. Stacy Sims on Facebook and Insta, and that's um, a good way to keep tabs on seminars, webinars, research that's coming out, and just daily little tidbits of things that will enhance women's performance potential. And also knowing that I categorize female athletes as any woman that exercises for a particular reason. Um <laughs> all out there to, uh, you know, help empower women to get the best out of what they're doing because we all work hard and we want what we're doing to work for us. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here, for answering all of these questions and for taking the time to really explain some of these complex topics. I so appreciate it. It's awesome. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, hopefully um, we can help spread the word some more across the board. Yeah, you're doing a great job at that. Follow Dr. Stacy Sims Instagram. It's the best. Just go ahead and do it right now. Um, DrStacySims.com is where you can find more about her. My website is CoconutsAndKettlebells.com. Thank you so much, guys, for being here. We will talk to you next week. 